I don't think the AGCO comes out with a very, very heavy hand from the outset of this as people are trying to understand the market. If something is egregious, I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of conversation with operators that's a little bit more stern. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the Gaming News Canada show. It is Thursday, January 25th, 2024, and I'm your host, Steve McAllister. We've got a big lineup of stories to cover this week. We have a big lineup of guests, regular contributors, Amanda Brewer and Phil Gray are with us. We're hoping that Chris Abbott will join us at some point. Sebastian Yedrzejewski, the uh, Director of Regulatory Affairs for U.S. Integrity, is back with us. Seb was with us about five weeks ago, and uh, I'm happy to have him back on to talk a little bit about the AGCO ad standards. Really excited to have back uh, Jessica Wellman, the editor-in-chief of SBC Americas, who continues to cover the U.S. regulated gambling industry. But uh, we also want to talk to Jessica about CBC Marketplace episode that was broadcast last Friday. And Paul Burns from the Canadian Gaming Association will also join us this hour. Both Paul and Amanda were in a Canadian Gaming Association board meeting this morning. And uh, luckily for the audience, uh, that meeting wrapped up a bit early. So really pleased to have them with us. I'd like to start, Sebastian, with you. And again, we're still, I think, five weeks away from the AGCO, the, the revised ad standards being put into place. There was supposed to be the guidance document finalized back on, on January 15th. I'm not sure where that sits right now. But Sebastian, just anything, anything to update us with that process as we move towards February 28th? Yeah, I think I don't want to echo too much what we've heard prior, but I, I do think we're, we're quite close and we're looking at something extremely soon, um, just off kind of pure speculation and having sat at the table from, from the AGCO's perspective in the fall. Um, but I think it's really important that we, we pay attention to the fact that, that as mentioned probably prior to and, and by people at the AGCO and, and in my experience, um, the guidance will likely... Uh, be helpful but but not the the 10 15 20 pages that may provide the the unique um got uh clarity that every single edge case uh that that's been raised by operators or those concerned has has brought up it really will be a case by case and, and a reasonably inter- reasonable interpretation as um has always been kind of hit on being the, the hallmark of the agco compliance team for good or or for bad Hey, Amanda, is there, does have you heard? Does does there continue to be any kind of feedback submitted to the AGCO? Like, is this still somewhat of a fluid process, or is it essentially the industry and other stakeholders right now waiting, waiting to uh, to see if AGCO makes any changes? Yeah, that that window uh, was supposed to close on the fifteenth, I believe, of January, and um, you know, it was you know the AGCO has had a very consultative approach to everything it's done. And I know it has listened and has read the submissions and has listened to the industry. So, you know, if you, if you had a lot that you had to say, if you had concerns, if you had suggestions um, and you, and you didn't submit anything, then, you know, that window right now is closed. And, you know, Paul, if you were here, would be reiterating that, you know, the AGCO has been quite clear that they don't have any intentions of going back to change anything at this point in time. And I think, you know, the other thing that's really important is to understand that, you know, these standards are really going to have to be carefully explained because it's not going to stop that vocal minority that's still looking to completely outright ban all gambling advertising. And you sort of have to look at what Ontario is doing with 
of you to the entire world because there are certainly our jurisdictions, you know, Australia, uh, Spain, that that are looking at or have completely banned gaming advertising. And it's it's one of those forms of, you know, one of those tools that operators have that is that is coming under increasing scrutiny um, in more mature regulatory environments across the world. So I think it's going to be really critical uh, for the AGCO when this comes into force to be out there talking about this, um, to be explaining the regulatory regime that they've set up, the standards that they've put in place, and why these changes have been made. Um, because I think that there has been so much emotional discussion about advertising, specifically the sports betting advertising, not so much on the casino side, that if these just get dumped out there um, with with sort of no defense, with no explanation, with no context, uh, I don't think that's going to do anything to kind of quell um, the displeasure or the discomfort or the, you know, sort of outright anger at this form of advertising, despite it being legal, despite these operators having licenses, there's still a lot of emotion attached to that advertising. Sebastian, would, would you agree with Amanda's assessment there? Yeah, I would say that that there is a lot of emotion attached to this from the, from the media perspective. And you, we can go to the marketplace um, report that came out and the comment made by those at Bristol, which said that this wouldn't really have any, I think it was quote unquote, not at all. It would not have any impact at all on, on the prevalence of gambling addiction. I, and I think that that's a little bit unfair. That's probably unfair, just baldly. Um, we've seen this approach taken by other jurisdictions uh, and it's taken because those of influence have influence over particular, particularly at-risk individuals. And I think this is a great way of compromising between um, the restriction of advertising while still allowing the healthy um, amount of advertising that we've seen so far. Um, the Bristol report is also interesting just from the perspective of what was cataloged or characterized as an ad. Um, I remember listening back to this, this podcast maybe a couple months ago when there was an individual who had watched a couple of sports broadcasts and actually sort of timed out the ads. And it, it certainly wasn't as prevalent as those at Bristol were, were assuming, to, assuming it to be. Um, the AGCO will always have a consultative approach, especially from a compliance perspective. I say that from the perspective of being involved in a couple of the penalties that got issued as the market opened, reviewing ads, talking to operators almost every day about advertising standards. It's an evolving process. Um, and even as the guidance comes out, things will be case by case and interpretation will be required, um, whether it be about the meaning of RG or what, what threshold you have to meet for an RG ad, including an athlete. Um, these things will, will all be open conversations with the AGCO. And, and it's really important that operators have this culture and, and this relationship with the AGCO and take advantage of that relationship with the AGCO uh, in having those conversations and really understanding what compliance means in these, in these different instances and, and what a reasonable approach to that would be. Obviously, that's not the answer that a lot of people are looking for. I can t say that from experience, but it, it is the it is the reality of the situation and it does allow for flexibility within the regulatory regime like amanda said it's important that everybody understands what that regulatory regime is and when the fifth estate last year characterized the regulatory regime as self-regulatory that was a little frustrating especially given the sheer amount of work that everybody in that i gaming compliance team uh puts in 
especially around advertising. Um, so I agree with Amanda, it would be good for the AGCO to, to be more vocal and active about what this regulatory regime is and the processes it goes through and the work it does, because it's quite a lot of work. Um, but similarly with the operators, uh, having that open dialogue and for the operators to take advantage of that open dialogue is, is so critical. And it, it, and that posture, we call it the compliance posture within the iGaming compliance team, um, really dictates the 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 softer angles of approach to potential non-compliance that, that you see with an operator. If you have an understanding with an operator that they've come forward to you, recognize something that is out there, but uh, maybe non-compliant and it brings it forward to you themselves, it's very difficult, different than when you have individuals coming through advertising and saying, and, and asking the operator themselves, well, how do you think this is compliant or this is non-compliant, this needs to be taken down. Um, these are very, very different scenarios. And then you kind of walk, walk into a governance structure. How is the marketing team communicating with your compliance team? These are all things that when you deal with a potential instance of non-compliance as an operator, you can walk, walk forward to the AGCO and say, we've got all these processes in place. We, there may have been a mistake, but we are very prepared to rectify this mistake. Being proactive about it, we have the right structures in place and the controls in place to help deal with this, even though something slipped. And these are very, very, very different scenarios. I don't think the AGCO comes out with a very, very heavy hand from the outset of this as people are trying to understand the market. That being said, obviously, in, if something is egregious, I wouldn't be surprised to see some to see some sort of conversation with operators. It's a little bit more stern, um, to put it lightly, in speculation. But uh, it is important to kind of move this forward with an open, open dialogue and conversation, particularly with the AGCO and the operators. Yeah, we'll get we'll get into that communication and, and messaging and education piece a little bit later in the show because I did uh, devote a section of the newsletter today to to that. We're going to get to Jessica Wellman in a second, but I want to welcome Paul Burns, the president and CEO of the Canadian Gaming Association, to the show. And Paul, thanks as always for joining us. I just, uh, you know, on top of what we discussed with Amanda and Sebastian before you came on, just uh, does the ad standards continue to be a hot button issue with your memberships, or where would you say things sit right now as we move towards that February twenty <laughs> deadline? As Sebastian talked about, uh, I know that you know understanding how to comply because I mean, there's a, we've voiced our frustration with some of the standards the way they're written, and I get it. It's, you know, they're not going to change. Um, I wanted to go back to core principles about appealing to minors versus a, what I see as a two test is who do you work for or what did you work for? What did you do for a living? Because if you're an athlete, well, then that's the first test and then you can't move forward. As opposed to just moving to every, you know, let's deal with the core product. The core issue is appealing to minors. And, um, it's just a need. It's, as I talked about, it's the clarity of understanding how to comply. The challenge in that, in this, is that um, does AGCO want to be the arbiter of every ad, and they take on that role, and that's why they—they, they, I don't think they want to. <laughs> and so, that's going to be the challenge: is that balance versus everybody wanting to. Well, can you take a look at this copy and say it's okay? Because um, that's not something they should be doing, and, and they probably don't want to do. And it should be that's where this guidance document is going to be critically important um, um, because there was no violations um, and 
I heard some this Bristol study was mentioned, and that's um, and I can go off on that. But you know, that was an opinion piece; it wasn't research. Um, and those are you know understanding that operators take safeguards, and this will be, I think, the challenge for the AGCO as this comes in. This is there will be a hundred voices that have an opinion on what they think something well that must appeal to miners because i think it does and that's that's the hard part of some of this debate as i call it. i've it's been emotional it's not been factual and that's why operators know that they'll take the steps they have that you know not putting people who may appear to be under the age or using people of an age of, say they're over 25 um in their ads. Uh, I think that there's things we'll continue to learn through this process. And I think that's an important part of where the dialogue could, it's not about this doesn't end here. It moves forward from here, but the dialogue on advertising, um, as the global conversation and jurisdictions about outright bans and, and other things continue that this, this isn't dialogue is not over. And what we as an industry need to do is be able to sit with the regulator and have an ongoing conversation, jointly fund research, jointly uh, being able to address the issues so that we can uh, under help the public understand um, the robustness of the regulatory regime and the fact that people take great care. And because uh, that was, you know, the CBC and when I spoke to them, the marketplace, marketplace hadn't spoken to a league or a broadcast before I went in last Monday, four days before they aired it. Um, because they didn't bother to figure out, well, there's a lot of stakeholders. There's, you know, broadcasters control the airwaves. The leagues control their products. There's a lot of stakeholders here. They just assumed the gaming industry got to do whatever it wanted, which was ridiculous. So there's a lot of education that's still going to continue from this. And this is why this is a, this is a start, not the end by any stretch. Hey, Jessica Wellman, I've got, I've got a couple of questions for you. I think, I believe you wrote about the CBC Marketplace episode for uh, Canadian Gaming Business. So I wanted to get your your thoughts on what you on what you reported. And then the second question, just, if, you know, how much of, and again, I know we've visited this issue in the past when we've had you on the show, but um, just kind of the state of the industry south of the border right now as it relates to, to advertising. Sure. So I will admit I did not watch the segment, but I did look at the research that they commissioned with right. the University of Bristol. Uh, I thought Paul was going to steal my thunder and, and tell you all of the things that are kind of suspicious, I think is fair to say. So, uh, Steve, you've been in the media. You know that a lot of people are struggling to just put out content. And so they have sent out kind of a PR and done a PR push around the study saying 20% of Canadian sports broadcasts have sports betting ads in them. Uh, if you go in and actually look at the methodology, they essentially took a week of NHL and NBA games in October and measured what they called instances of a sports betting ad. And they were like, you know, 90% of them are logo exposure. Well, the reason 90% of them were logo exposure is because if you say, you know, on the left side of a hockey rink, there's 
a, you know, baseboard ad for the score sports book. If you saw that ad in a wide shot of the entire rink, that counted as an instance. If it then cut to the left side of the rink, because that's where the action was, then that counted out as an instance. And then when it cut back to the center, that counted as an instance. So essentially what this study measured was largely just like how much we're passively seeing sports betting logos when we watch uh, sports as someone who regularly watches basketball and I watch the same team. I really can't tell you who the advertisers are at the top off the top of my head. So uh, they found, you know, like 3,700 of the 4,000 instances are these logo slaps. And then they also just took a very broad idea of they looked at 10 sports betting operators and called them advertisements uh, any time that that account tweeted about something during the game. And I don't know if you follow these major sports books, but a big ploy of what they do is they try to generate engagement by retweeting clips or asking what people thought of a play and things that are very tran or you know tangential to the actual act of sports betting. If there's one thing I will give this study, uh, it is that they have pointed out that these types of engagements coming from operators are not really governed in any way. And they do, you know, there is a wide swath of them that are are happening, at least on the U.S. side. At one point I counted, uh, it was something like one operator had tweeted like 65 times in 48 hours. Uh, and it was largely memes and stuff like that. So they're getting brand awareness out in a way that's not explicitly a promotion or an ad or something that has an age gate on it. And I don't think there's really any jurisdiction in North America that is addressing that just yet. But I I don't know if we're really ready to start doing that. <laughs> we're still working on both sides of uh, North America to finesse just broad terms about advertising that we're putting the cart before the horse to really talk about how much people are tweeting from the BetMGM account in 24 hours. Yeah, I guess I just add, Jess, like, again, I've, I've we've talked here a couple of times about the, I guess, the unscientific study I did a, a couple of years ago watching a Hockey Night in Canada broadcast. And and uh, at that time, which I think was in the first year of the marketplace, the uh, the level of advertising or, or brand promo promotion was wasn't really a whole lot different than those the usual major major categories like uh, food and beverage and banking and tele telecommunications and it kind of feels like that was probably the same case as well. And I was going to say you call it an unscientific study. It sounds kind of like you did basically what the people out of Bristol did, well, which yeah, is just watch something and count how much you saw it. I guess that the methodology was similar. Pauline, add an, add an addition to what uh, Jessica said here. Uh, it was actually ninety four percent were logo placements. Oh, from, or thank you for that. Floors on floors, rink boards, or in stadium. Also, one of those games was in Chicago, by the way. Nice. Um, so that's a whole other issue. Um, not understanding how the broadcast system works, which is not surprising for someone who works for the CBC. Um, so I, in conversations with them, they kept using different terms. And this is the part where it gets confusing because people will see ads and they'll think it's like television commercials. Well, television commercials and in broadcast activations represented 6% of what they saw. 
advertising is down year over year on sports broadcast. Um, and and then the criticism that only three percent of the messages had RG messages in them. Well, yeah, because people don't put RG messages in their brand logos. Um, and I think it's the interchangeability of language, and that was the discussion I had with the host while I was doing the interview was trying to get them, what are you talking about? Because they were very cryptic about how much information they were providing to anybody, including operators they were asking for comments on. Until I started, they showed me the screen with the all the circles of logos. And then they kept calling them ads. And I said, well, a lot of, they're not ads <laughs> um, in the traditional sense. Because there's a whole host of people that think there's too much traditional television commercials and in broadcast activations. Um, there, I haven't seen their data tables, but one of the other things that the host didn't mention in their broadcast, um, is I believe they may have counted other logos and other, and they said there was 8% more than other brands appearing in that. That's the other dynamic here is that the fact is, is in, in, in is you mix like some, you know, I've been told hockey's down and basketball's about even maybe a little higher than it was last year in terms of advertising and promotions or uh, in-game activations in the broadcast. So it's kind of, you know, that's the, the whole thing is that they're disproportionate. They're not seeing, um, and they couldn't quantify that 8% and say, well, that was total versus everything else, which it probably wasn't. It was probably more than some, but not all, because, you know, in, in Hockey Night Canada broadcast, you are more likely to see an automobile ad or ad for financial services than you are to see a gaming ad or activation. And that's just the, what's going on. And it's that context and facts that they've kind of blown to pieces with this, um, because it is an opinion piece. Um, uh, passing judgment and using what I refer to as weasel words when they will potentially appeal to minors could be seen as they used a lot of that language which wasn't definitive because they didn't really know when they accused of ad standards Canada of not enforcing their standards which isn't entirely accurate and questioned the AGCL so uh, it was clearly an agenda um, the Bristol University folks did this to the Premier League last year um, it's a methodology and that's fine, but it's, um, not how people watch TV, as Jessica said, and watch broadcasts. They watch the game. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, uh, we're going to, I know we're going to lose Sebastian here in a couple of minutes. Sebastian, did you, did you want to add anything to this, to this, uh, segment? Thanks, Steve. Uh, I think I've got to echo the comments about some of the comments about the study, um, it, the, a methodology doesn't necessarily mean a good methodology. And I think I'll leave it there and let everybody carry on. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Sebastian. Always good to have you. That's uh, Sebastian Yedrideski from, um, from U.S. Integrity. A word from our sponsor. Hey there, sports fans. Are you looking for fresh and fun takes on the hottest topics in Canadian sports? Well, we've got just what you need. Introducing Homestand Sports Today, your go-to daily sports newsletter, bringing you the Canadian angle on the hottest NHL, NBA, 
footy stories, and more right to your inbox. But wait, there's more. Homestand Sports isn't just another text-heavy newsletter. Every story has its own video featuring our talented hosts like me, Albert Vartanian, giving you a newsletter experience like never before. And did I mention it's a free subscription? Subscribe now at homestand.ca. Now back to the show. Jess, I just want to ask you, kind of as a journalist, and I did write a, a section in the newsletter today about too often it seems, and, and it's not just this industry, we see it in politics, we see it at the corporate level now where industry leaders are reluctant to, to talk to mainstream media. And it's something that Amanda's talked a bit about on the on the show here along with Chris and and when we've had Paul on it, there is an education process to be done with with mainstream media. And I actually did an interview on a radio station in Hamilton last night and, and was explained to the radio hosts there about the fact that, you know, it's a 14-year-old boy just can't sign up for a sports book app and start betting on, on sports right away and talked a bit about the advertising in the industry. And there were a couple of things that, that kind of sparked me to write about this. And it was the marketplace piece last week where, where operators were requested for interviews. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in the, the newsletter that, that FanDuel deferred to the Canadian Gaming Association and, and Bet365 didn't respond to a re- request for, for an interview. And uh, the second example was si- Simon helped uh, the Globe Mail wrote a piece last week. And Simon and I have talked about this uh, anytime we meet at a conference in, in Toronto, uh, his frustration with, with trying to get people to respond to requests for interviews and, and trying to get in information, especially with the, the AGCO has been a hard nut to, not to crack um, for, for people in the industry, including me. And I, I'd like to see iGaming Ontario be more more transparent at, at times. And it's something I discussed with, with Martha Otten. And I just wonder, Jess, have you found that, that there there is a lack of understanding with, with reporters who are new to the gambling industry and understanding how the regulated industry works and that there is a need to for industry leaders to be more transparent and, and forthright? That's a big question. Whew. Uh, <laughs> how much time do we have? Um, to start with the piece about kind of operators not being forthcoming, I'm going to speak primarily to the experience I've heard in the United States, which is that it was maybe a little over a year ago, there were a series of New York Times pieces that all kind of had a negative slant on sports betting. And I think because of those, because of some of the other stories that have come out, the industry inevitably is kind of bracing themselves whenever mainstream media does want to be involved. because. I don't know if somebody wants to read a story about how, you know, we set up industries that contribute to problem gambling. You know, like that's not <laughs> that's not the way news works. There has to be something salacious to it and and something negative to it. I think it's hard for it's hard to con- convey to consumers what you know. I don't have this problem as much as some of our peers because we're a, a B two B site that operators are more willing to talk because it's going to be a conversation for an audience that understands them. I think what's harder is for operators to go out to Paul's point and be put in front of a, a situation where you're being asked questions that require going back to just like the basic ABCs of how the industry works. And, you know, if you're going to have to deal with both, you know, an adversarial and an un- arguably uneducated person speaking to you, I, I wouldn't volunteer to do it. Paul's the one who can go do that, right, Paul? 
Well, that's what yeah, that's what happened. Um, and but the nature of how these stories have been built. So they were doing the story in the fall. They called me at the end of December to set up an interview for four days before they go to air. They've done the story. They didn't start talking to and reaching out to operators, particularly around their test of the bonus and the incentive, which was kind of odd because it was kind of a, a, the whole story had like all these different kind of, they threw everything at the wall and let's just see what we get there. We'll figure out a story because they had all these different angles. But one of the things they were very, not very forthcoming was what they'd done and what they were asking for comment on. They were selective about providing information, including telling one up, oh, I think we've given you enough. Are you prepared to comment? Was the line. There was no, because the whole exercise was on bonusing incentive. They were, when you look at the segment in that, they were pissed off that they didn't get to cash out on their bonuses to take real money away. They got to play on them. But they didn't, they wanted to, they wanted money in their pocket. That's what they were, that was an expectation they had, but that's not how these things have ever worked. Because they asked me about it and I said, well, you got to play the bonuses. And he said, yeah, but we never got to cash out. I said, that's too bad. <laughs> that's all they said to them because it's like, so you read the rules and, you know, the terms and conditions are right there or one click away. That's the standard. That's the rules. Oh, yeah, no, we did. But we just never got our money. Well, I'm sorry. And so when you look at how they approach it and they're asking operators, well, they don't, you know, is basically asking, that's not fair. Well, they got to play with the bonus money or credits. They just didn't get money. We've had the same in the US where there's even a class action lawsuit in Massachusetts that is done by like a, a lobbying organization against gambling that is cracking down on this. And what I've heard from the operators too is you seemed to not care about this at all when offshore operators have been doing this for 20 years, that it's just kind of wild that all of a sudden this is so important to you. And I get that by any means, a regulated market should be held to higher standards. But uh, I know speaking with the operators that I speak with, the continued frustration and the AGA has said this as well is you're so focused on this and seem to not be focused on the much more problematic offshore operators who are completely unregulated and could just, you know, tell you you have a bonus and take it away without playing through because there's no recourse for anybody if they do such a thing. Amanda, did you want to jump in here? Yeah, there's not much more I can add um, other than what, you know, Jessica and, and, and Paul have said, because I've been alongside Paul for the ride and have seen the absolute frustration. I've, I've sat in on one of the, you know, live tapings he did with CBC. And as someone who, who has a master's degree in journalism and who actually worked at the CBC, it, like my professors would have been appalled if I'd been approaching any of the articles that have been written, it's not just CBC, CTV, a whole bunch of them, um, the way these reporters have. And it's it's even more mind boggling when the standards are online, anyone can go and pull them and look at them. Um, and the fact that, you know, almost two years into this market, um, 
no one can appreciate that talking to researchers in a country that has a vastly different cultural experience with gambling than we do is probably going to lead to an inherent bias um, and that we have researchers here. Like, I don't know why no one went and talked to Mike Noreen over at Brock. And if he could do the research, he probably could have recommended somebody else who could have done it for him. But, you know, we've been banging on about the need for local research and for people to talk about the issues that are unique to Ontario and Ontario specific. So I just kind of hang my head in shame um, because of, you know, my former employer, the CBC, and its complete unwillingness to engage in what I would call basic research into an industry that is now regulated. Um, so, yeah, that, that's yeah. just, yeah, I just, I, I feel so bad for Paul because he's hanging himself <laughs> out there all the time to do these interviews. And I really think he needs to have more of the industry and the stakeholders who are making the decisions um, you know, specifically around sports betting advertising, stepping up and, and sharing, just shouldering that burden a little bit more. So it's not just Paul all the time. Yeah. I, I think that I, was, I don't that mind. was, that, <laughs> yeah. And that was my point of the piece in the news there as mad as I, I just kind of feel like Paul's alone on an Island sometimes. And as I mentioned, like Paul's, Paul's a pro. Anytime that I got a question as, as I did this week uh, on, on the FinTrack report that was out, that was in the Tuesday newsletter, email Paul or text Paul and he gets back to me right away. Right. I also wrote in the piece that people like yourself, Amanda and, and Chris and Phil have been terrific. We've, we've been doing this for almost three, three years now. And, and um, the people listen to this show are learn an awful lot of their newcomers, in the industry because of the insight and information that, that you and, and Chris and Phil and, you know, when Nick Solsky has been here and Troy Ross, that those people uh, provide, but I, th I think there's a lot of other industry leaders out there that could help tell that story. I just want one comment based on what Jessica said, Steve was that's true. And and I raised this with in the my inter part of the interview with CBC um, that there's been a lot of focus on Ontario's regulated marketplace and a lot of criticism level, but people still ignore the fact that there's the rest of Canada where people are getting access to sites where there's no age gating. Um, there's no RG monitoring, there's no programs, there's no, and so, because that was highlighted in the FinTrack bulletin about people playing on, you know, sites are being run by organized crime. The Hells Angels don't have an RG program. Let me tell you that. And so they, that is the biggest thing is that the fact that that's just being ignored because when you explain, well, Ontario did this to bring greater oversight, actually to, to limit the sites that people could gamble on because we want them to go to the ones that are regulated by the AGCO and share the IGO logo. And that's that's a big thing. That there's a lot of attention paid to regulated markets when there's still vast illegal markets operating. And that's frustrating. Yeah. And as you mentioned that, Paul, it's, it's funny. Just before the show started today, I got a, an email came from uh, the media relations people at Alberta Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis warning... Uh, warning people about fraudulent apps and social media ads that are impersonating casino and racing entertainment centers right now in Alberta. And I think there was some mention of that, or I think that may have been part of the conversation you and I had earlier this week about the FinTrack uh, report is that um, there is going to be more of this type of activity with the increase in online gambling and, 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 and markets that aren't regulated. No, there's, there's, 
on Facebook, there's a very active um, organization. I think it's probably all the same, stealing the brands of casinos across the country, um, saying, "Well, oh, the the Woodbine Casino is now open, or Falls View is open, and they're they're stealing their logos and their brands." Um, they've done it in Manitoba. They've done it in Alberta. They've done it in British Columbia. They're even doing it with the, you know, the two casinos run by Manitoba Lotteries. Um, and link here and come and play online. And you know, we've been sending things to Facebook, but it's asking them the question of their internal processes of how do these people get up on Facebook when they're running. They're stealing other people's IP, um, and that's, you know, and that's, you know, probably a very a sophisticated legal operation that links people to to sites that aren't probably very good in any kind of fashion, but they're just trying to steal their money, and that continues. And that's a question I've had with Facebook, and as they try and look at their own processes, because. You know, putting up a gaming ad should be, come from somebody that has a license. Hey, Paul, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. You may have to run here, but I, I did want to ask you, is there any any news report from the CJ board meeting that, that you had this morning? No, we're, you know, we're getting uh, plans for 2024 um, underway, and there's lots on our agenda for things like advertising and... Uh, hopefully a parliamentary review will come for review of the uh, money laundering legislation in Canada, which is woefully out of date, uh, especially for the gaming industry. Um, so I think, no, there's lots, uh, but always a good, healthy discussion with the board and, and we're uh, putting our plans in place and lots to do. Hey, and I'll mention too, Paul, while I've got you, both you and Jess here that, uh, that registration is now now uh, up and running for the Canadian Gaming Summit June eighteenth to twentieth at the Metro Toronto Convention Center and SBC are the uh, uh, I guess the conducting managers of the of the summit once again this year and uh, Jess it sounds like uh, the the your friends at the SBC are, are pretty excited already about uh, about this year's summit. I've been having conversations with people about conference content and very excited that as the agenda comes together, uh, we're going to have another good conference on our hands. Hey, Jess, I want to get into this. I know Mark Silver is chomping at the bit to um, another section of today's newsletters. It's been just a crazy week on the media, sports betting, sports media content, the continued news around the bankruptcy of Diamond Group. A big story for wrestling fans and in the sports media business world this week was that Netflix is uh, going to be the exclusive home of the, the Raw program in Canada, the US, UK, and Latin America beginning in 2025. Minute Media, another uh, a US sports media company, announced yesterday that they're, they're acquiring STN Video and People who work in the Canadian media business are certainly familiar with STN Video as, as providers of, of sports video to digital media media sites across uh, across Canada. And then obviously Playmaker Capital, their acquisition by Better Collective, it's one step closer to happening after getting shareholder approval this week. But the big story, I guess, I guess south of the border was Sportico's Evan Novi Williams breaking the news yesterday that... Uh, Barstool Sports and DraftKings are far down the road on a 
on a partnership some you know six months after uh Penn Entertainment made uh, made the announcement that it was severing ties with Barstool Sports and getting together with ESPN. Yeah, um, you listed so many, and it's been such a hectic week. Like we've already forgotten that you know, rest in peace, Sports Illustrated. Yes, yes. That, that happened too this week. It's been really a crazy time, and I think that kind of actually somewhat explains why. Uh, a group like DraftKings would still be really interested in Barstool Sports as an affiliate. Prior to being acquired by Penn, Barstool Sports was a very effective affiliate. They had a longstanding deal with FanDuel that was, I believe, you know, the biggest part of their business was money generated off of that. What was surprising for me is I had heard that the non-compete as part of the, you know, selling Barstool back to Dave Portnoy for a dollar. I'd heard it was short, but I didn't really understand that it was really just a single football season. And when you think about the fact that for half of that football season, Barstool Sportsbooks actually still existed. They just weren't actively being promoted and ESPN bet didn't launch until mid-November. I don't really know how much of a lead time you've given yourself. uh, And it really kind of indicated just what a bind uh, Portnoy and Barstool had Penn in that they had this much leverage. Yeah, that, that does seem strange. I mean, that that is a really short window. And obviously, DraftKings is a major, major competitor for ESPN bet, right? Yeah. Th- so I will put some context to this deal, having worked in the affiliate world. Like, I don't, it, it said low eight figures. Mark can maybe offer more insight on this than I can. I would think that a bulk of that is contingent upon actually delivering customers and some sort of revenue share or CPA agreement. It's not just like we wrote you a check for $10 million and now you're an advertising partner. Uh, I'm not surprised that an operator would continue to use them as an affiliate. I think, though, what we learned from the Barstool Sportsbook experiment is that uh, stoolies, while incredibly loyal to the media brand, are maybe not as convertible and sticky to a sports book. And so, uh, I'm, you know, this sounds like about the the right price to me. Again, it just depends on how much they're able to really convert. But uh, it's not when you think about. At one point, Penn essentially paid half a billion dollars for this company, and now it's doing a low eight figure deal. That sounds a lot more sensible in terms of what Barstool can actually bring you as an operator. Hey, let's get Mark Silver from Parley Media Group in here because Mark, you and I have been going back and forth this week as every event happens. And, and yeah, Jess, thanks for thanks for mentioning the Sports Illustrated news as well. Yeah, Steve, where where do you want to start? I mean, it's uh, and of course, Steve and I back channel basically all day, every day on everything going on. So this is just an opportunity to share that stream of consciousness with you all. Let's start with your, with your thoughts uh, on Barstool and DraftKings. Well, I think Dave Portnoy, and, and I think we talked about this last week, Steve, whether you like him or not, it's fine that he's not everyone's cup of tea. The guy has just built a winning formula with that audience. It's great that Jessica's here. She can help us maybe tap into some understanding about DraftKings, but DraftKings does not seem to be kind of a by-the-book organization. We've heard all about the way that their CEO or travels around and makes himself available. And um, and is there some kind of Boston connection here, something in the water that makes this kind of extra special that maybe 
us, you know, only an hour plane ride away from Boston, just can't understand here in Toronto about how this makes sense, considering the investments that DraftKings you know, has already made in VEASAN, which seems to have just like evaporated into thin air. The other thing too, Mark, just again, you and I back channeling yesterday in particular about the Minute Media STN deal. And it just, it's just the latest chapter and in, in, I guess the re- remaking reimagination of sports media you know in north america now where we have more and more regulated sports betting sports media trying to find a lane with with merging content and and betting i mean of all those deals that we talked about is there is there one that 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 really intrigues you well i think stn is incredibly interesting combined with minute media because that becomes like the outside of youtube you know that is the biggest place for consuming sports content both from leagues and professional creators and broadcasters, uh, if that becomes the dominant place to view video content. Now, historically, it's been on the web. It hasn't been integrated into apps of media companies. So we'll see if that changes. They become the dominant force. And there's some amazing logic here that we're very aware of in our business on the homestand sports side, which is there are all these legacy publishers that don't have video, they don't have rights, they don't have maybe even an ad ops team, a media sales team, they don't have any of these things, but they have traffic. And that traffic gets monetized because of STN and Minute Media. And so that is a very valuable piece of the puzzle as you look at a lot of the content that you'll see on these legacy media sites. The editorial will come from a wire service. Hopefully it's not just AI driven off the data, but a wire service nonetheless. And now we have this massive, millions of video clips that are available and continue to be available in real time that are being paired up with this editorial content that's sitting on these websites that is driven by seo traffic and all of a sudden you're able to monetize your traffic without creating any content at all it's a different landscape just take a page out of we talked about better collective last week as well look at what a great partnership it would be between better collective minute media stn all those affiliate sites will have all this video and maybe some of them do i mean i'm not i don't have enough detail to say they don't but all of a sudden whatever website yard barker and that's one of the new better collective properties right through the playmaker capital acquisition all of a sudden they have every video they could possibly imagine that might even for the most part be on espn now maybe the personalities aren't all theirs and there's one other piece here and we're not in the u.s so we don't get to see the duel so jessica maybe you can tell us if the duel still exists but you know, Minute Media, from what I remember, was powering the duel. So there is a FanDuel Minute Media connection here uh, that we don't see up here in Canada. But but maybe someone who's in the U.S. can tell us whether or not the duel still still, still is accessible. It, it still exists. I just don't know if it's something that FanDuel has really plugged the same way uh, as it did when it first um, got started. Uh, DraftKings seemed to just have a little more success with its SB Nation blog. Uh, the duel, uh, it just never really took off the same way. But I think, you know, FanDuel more than DraftKings has really put a lot of marketing effort less into print kind of content. And they're very big on podcasts. They have a deal with the Ringer Network. I just saw you know, FanDuel's TVs, Up and Adams is going to be at the New York Stock Exchange broadcasting on Monday with Gronk because they're celebrating being listed on the exchange that they just seem to be more focused on that vertical of media versus kind of the traditional SEO ranking pages that the duel was trying to be. 
And the term we wrap around it, just so we have the right language to share, is, is distributed media. That's what Minute Media and STN are. They hold the rights, they control the monetization, but they don't own the property necessarily where the content is consumed because it is distributed. It's very similar when you talk about DraftKings TV, for example, and we looked at it's available you know, on Samsung TV Plus, which is a free ad-supported streaming channel. I know it's also available in the DraftKings app, but that's also a distributed media strategy where you're trying to meet audiences where they already are, whether that's a device like a Samsung television, and that's available on your phone as well as an app, regardless of whether you have an Android or, or an iPhone. And so just this concept of you're trying to get consumers, no matter what you're selling, into your ecosystem and to reach them, you're trying to find them where, wherever they are. It's a different form of advertising in a world where very few events allow for that critical mass of audience. I mean, every brand has got to take advantage of the fact that they don't have to get a user to the necessarily the, the highest CPM location uh, that they can afford to buy in order to make their brand penetrate and come through. Hey, Jess, there, there are people who got really sentimental up here in Canada when they saw the Sports Illustrated news last week. And I think, you know, for many of us who are sports fans, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, that, that holds true for Amanda and, and Phil and Paul and, and Mark. I mean, we, we probably were all Sports Illustrated subscribers or read the magazine at one time. And I certainly remember remembering as a kid growing up in small town, eastern Ontario, getting waiting for my copy every week and reading some of the great... Uh, you know, the great work by sports illustrated journalists, the current state of that brand is a lot more complicated. You've, you've got the, the, the brand is being, the magazine's being licensed. I believe um, you have a, a partnership with 888 holdings around the SI sports book that's up and running in some States in the U S is there anything that sticks in particular with, with, with last week's news? I think the sentiment was that, it felt like kind of the last piece of the way that we used to think about sports media had kind of died. You know, everybody, this was a place that you went to for uh, the best writing, the highest quality. And now that every single sports team and every single region has the ability to have these kind of micro focused people on given sports and stuff, it, it just doesn't really feel fit in there anymore and they never really figured out how to make that transition into the digital space. Um, the 888 piece is interesting. You know, I don't think that they really broke the bank licensing the SI brand to begin with, but, you know, I'm curious what they do going forward. Now we put in a request for comment on it and never got anything back, but it is just it's a nostalgic brand, though. I think their CEO, Howard, when he was speaking on a panel with me at SBC Summit North America last year, kind of said, you know, we're not here to be the cool, trendy sports book. We're here to be the nostalgic sports book that your dad wants to play on. Right. Yeah. Very well. Uh, very well put. Hey, before we wrap up here, I want to I'd like to get Paul and maybe Amanda back quickly, Paul, on just the uh, the FinTrack report that we covered in Tuesday's newsletter. And I guess the uh, you know the the Spark Notes version is just that that online gambling has sparked an increase in money laundering by by organized crime and and uh, I guess other groups. But Paul, are there are there just a couple of uh, a couple of takeaways from that report or or lessons to be learned or, or what struck you about the uh, the special bulletin that was put out? Uh, not a lot actually struck me. 
Um, because I don't think anything in there wasn't hasn't been widely known. Um, the reality is that um, their source for this was not just um, and not and the important part to take away from this is that it didn't come from reports from Ontario's regulated operators in a lot of ways. There was other sources uh, as they come at this. And, and, and I think that they, um, as I said, when they mentioned the fact that there's organized crime operating online sites, that's, that is not new. That's like a decade or more old. The first opportunity I saw with, um, and it was widely publicized in the, I think the 2013, 14 Super Bowl day raid on the banquet hall in Vaughan, North of Toronto, where they uh, raided a Super Bowl party of for a thousand people that was being run by the site. <laughs> um, it was a great business model too, because they were actually using, um, they're basically the technology arm for your local bookie. So you could go online, make your bets, but none of the cash was traded online until they actually fronted it with an online casino eventually. Um, but initially it was a place where you could make bets and then your bookie would visit you to exchange cash, uh, kind of automating the local bookie arrangement, um, placing odds all in one place. And that kind of operation, those existed and they're still around and they're still, um, you know, criminal elements from all over the world that are still trying to, you know, use online gaming as a way to steal money so it wasn't surprising um particularly you know they, they mentioned crypto they mentioned the use of prepaid cards which are not permitted in ontario crypto is not permitted anywhere in canada um so i think it's it's great but all it does to me is say that that's why we need more regulated regimes um because then it's it's canadians need to know that they can play on regulated sites um and the fact that you know there was another story i saw today that um ibia and norwegian um association have got a mou they've signed right. to work on expanding the market it is norway is one of the last monopolies in anywhere and that's a recognition we haven't seen from a lot of uh, some parts of Canada. Um, there's been no monopoly on gaming for 20 years, 25 years in Canada through for online or otherwise for um, the lottery corporations. And it's so the ability that the jurisdictions have seen the need to evolve and change. I mean, the internet's been a great disruptor for dozens of industries, ours included. And so what becomes more paramount is the need to protect consumers in the market. That's why laws were changed around ride sharing and Airbnbs and municipal ordinance. Everything's come around because it's a great disruptor. And that's where the part the government needs to recognize that doing nothing's not an option anymore. Um, and I think that's what, that's the FinTrack report told to me. It's like, yeah, there are people out there that, do these things. And that's why if more online gaming in Canada was funneled through regulated marketplaces, there would be more eyes on it. And, and, uh, a lot of these things wouldn't exist. And I think that's important. Um, because we get, you know, the intelligence for companies like GeoComply provide 
if there's, you know, a hundred accounts are being set up from the same address, they can find that. Well, you know, in unregulated markets, you don't see that. You don't get that intelligence. Amanda, I remember Paul, while Paul was speaking, I remember you telling me this week that Paul was the expert on, on AML. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you off the, let you off the hook. Uh, Phil Gray's been sitting here politely and quietly for the last hour, but so I want to get Phil just quickly, Phil, with uh, the NFL Conference Championship games this week, and any uh, any advice for for our loyal listeners? Yeah, if you are at a profit exchange in the United States, let's see what uh, ESPN. We'll talk about them, what they're going to offer. Uh, that's the big story in the gambling world last week, Steve. Uh, they had a promotional odds boost. Uh, on a spread, which is something you really don't see for those uh, low-level uh, markets that are kind of a customer enticement. They went on the spread at the Ravens and, and, and bumped it up to 10 plus 140. So you could have bet Houston on the other side and locked in about a two hundred two and a half buck uh, profit. So on 100 bucks, you did free two and a half bucks. So one of the profit exchanges in New Jersey, uh, Sport Trade, uh, told all their betters to sign up ESPN and uh, hammer the Ravens. And that's what they did. And look at the Ravens covered. And there's, you know, there's wide speculation on what ESPN was doing. Um, it's not a bookmaking practice that uh, I, I would recommend, but it uh, seems they might have lost about $5 million bucks. So, uh, yeah, well, th- let's see what they do this weekend, if they're going to do it again. Whether it was planned or not, again, a lot of, you know, was it a mistake? I can't see it being a mistake. It was up all afternoon, and they must have had some oversight. They had a huge liability on Baltimore at one point. Whether they were laying off on Houston again, uh, I don't know. But uh, boy, that you know, just something you see it in the, you know in the news now with uh, with gambling that you just wouldn't have seen six or seven years ago. It's just uh, it's fascinating to watch. Let's uh, let's leave it right there. Um, thank you, Phil Gray, for that. Uh, Jessica Wellman, thanks so much for for coming back. Um, as always, uh, great insight, and uh, uh, we'll get you back on the show soon. But I really appreciate you being with us, Jess. Happy to anytime. And, of course, uh, regular contributor Amanda Brewer, thank you. And Paul Burns, President and CEO of the Canadian Gaming Association. Paul, uh, thanks as always, and I'm sure we'll be talking probably the next two or three days. Thanks for having me, Steve. Appreciate it. Uh, And, again, just a reminder that uh, we we take the LinkedIn Audio Show on Thursday afternoon podcast on Monday mornings. You can get it by subscribing to Gaming News Canada. You can also get it by going to GamingNewsCanada.ca or finding it on the various streaming platforms. Uh, Thanks, everyone, as always, for for being part of the LinkedIn Audio Show. Please enjoy your weekend. Be safe at this time of year, especially if you're driving in the winter weather. And we will see everybody in seven days' time. Thank you for listening to the Gaming News Canada Show. Sign up for our newsletter at GamingNewsCanada.ca. Follow Steve McAllister on LinkedIn to join the live audience. Message Steve if you're interested in being a sponsor or featured guest. 